The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Thanks for joining us. Great to have my co-hosts uh, with me today, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, let's uh, kick it off with you. Great. Thanks, John. So I wanted to talk about uh, compensation practices today. This, this came up this week as I was looking at the company here, kind of going through the earnings uh, parade that we're all getting this time of year. And I was looking at a company, and I, I won't name it. I'm not trying to call it out. I actually think it's a pretty interesting company. I, I wouldn't uh, say it's good or bad. I don't own it, but I, I certainly would consider it. I am considering it right now. But it, what jumped out to me was it, it's not a tech company either, but the stock compensation levels are just insane. And it's going to continue and potentially even get worse. And so I was kind of arguing about this or debating it with a friend of mine who tried to think, he took the position that it was actually a good thing. So by the way, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. I'll frame the scenario a little bit more. So this is a, a pretty big company uh, operating in the US. It's got a pretty steady top line business with some competition, but um nothing too disruptive on the horizon. Revenue's been growing pretty nicely. I mean, they definitely got a COVID bump, but nothing completely nuts. Uh, so they, they did add some new customers in 2020, but uh, revenues continued to grow and, and users fell off a little bit in 2021, but nothing too dramatic. And it's got you know, good margins. I mean, it's got almost a 20% operating margin, more or less, a little, little above that, actually. It's, it's making money. There's Oh, well over a billion dollars of free cash flow every year going back to 2017. Uh, so what stands out then is if you look at the stock compensation they've issued, they started out at 57 million in 2017, 60 million the following year, 99 million, 125 million in 2020, and 98 million last year. This is a company with not a ton of employees and certainly not of a ton of employees that are getting this kind of stock compensation, it's already controlled by a billionaire. And so this is stock compensation that's going to a relatively small selected group of insiders that should already be pretty well motivated. And if they weren't, here's the problem. All of these shares that were issued over the past few years were generally issued at, I'll pull up the exact prices right now, in the 2020, 2019 frame, they would have been issued between 15 and $25 a share. In 2020, it went up closer to 30. Last year, most of the shares would have been issued well over 30 toward $35 a share. The stock today is at 11. The stock today is at less than it was in March of 2020. It's been absolutely annihilated. And, and so now you've tied the employees supposed incentives to stock a price that's way underwater, right? And it wasn't like, I, I, some of it was options, but it wasn't like, oh, this is you know just a nice cherry on top. This was a meaningful chunk of people's supposed motivation and compensation. So now you've tied them to a, a sinking stock price. And this kind of gets to what we were talking about, John and Elliot and I just now before we started recording, doing your job is hard enough and investing is hard enough. There are very few CEOs who can emotionally distance themselves between the stock price and the day-to-day -day operations and what needs to be done. And so I don't care who it is, whether it's the CFO or the executive vice president or whatever, 
it's really hard for them to sit here and say, ooh, I got millions of dollars of stock compensation at $25 or $30 a share 18 months ago. And they're doing the math on how much that's worth. And they're buying cars and boats and houses and thinking they've got their retirement saved for and whatever. And now all of a sudden the stock's down 60, 70% from its peak. It's down 50% from where you got the shares issued. You owed taxes on it at that level. You're way upside down on this and it's stressful for them, right? Why wouldn't it have been better to just pay them with cash and let them make their own decision on it? And look, you can have the type of culture where you say, we expect all senior employees to have a significant stock ownership position. And that's that, right? If the company's well run and the culture's good and people want to stay there and work there, they're going to. And if they want to buy the stock, they're going to. I mean, it's not like there's no precedent for this, right? I mean, there are plenty of companies that have done it this way. And a lot of their employees end up very, very wealthy because of it. And they don't suffer all this strife and heartache along the way. But for whatever reason, in the past five, 10, at least years, it seems like we've had this huge explosion where these people, and it started in tech in Silicon Valley, where it's just like, okay, we're going to pay you in, in equity because it's kind of free, funny money, right? I mean, we don't, we just issue shares and poof, voila, and everybody's happy. But, and that is, they are happy if the stock goes up forever in a straight line. But when you run into these rough patches, like so many companies are having right now, at least as it pertains to their stock price, you can't separate people from what's happening in the market. And by the way, this has real implications for the company's balance sheet too, because so many companies convince themselves of this completely backwards upside down math where they issue hundreds of millions of dollars of stock compensation, and then they go and buy it back in the market using after-tax dollars. I mean, forget about the frictional cost of just the transaction itself. It's so inefficient to do it this way when you could actually deduct the compensation instead of buying back the the shares in the open market with after-tax dollars. So in this company's case, and by the way, I should add that the elephant in the room here is that this company has a ton of leverage on it. So that is not a small issue here as to why this was also extremely risky and a lot like paying people with just straight stock options, because this company has billions of dollars of debt. Uh, as of the most recent quarter, the market cap is now down to uh, about five, $6 billion against 25, $27 billion of debt. This is a very, very levered company. So, and it's been levered the whole way. The debt has gone up over the last three or four years. It's not like this was a deleveraging story where they were getting out in front of it. So even though they've been generating a billion plus of free cash flow every year, the, the debt is quite extreme. And what did they do along the way? Instead of paying down debt, the stock repurchases over the last four years, $500 million, $1.6 billion, $4.5 billion in 2020, and 800 and something million last year. So it's just astounding to see six, $7 billion of stock repurchased at what looks like now an absolutely horrible price, right? I mean, the stock's at least 50% below all of those purchases and debt's gone up and you've issued what, a half a billion dollars of stock to your employees along the way. I mean, this is just malpractice amongst in the capital allocation world. And I don't understand why so many companies do it. And then you go in and you read the proxy. And again, I argue this until I'm blue in the face with everybody who will listen to me rant and rave about it, that the proxy is the most underutilized document in all of business and finance. It's stunning to me how many people say, oh, I love this, or I'm a deep fundamental analyst and blah, blah, blah. Well, what about this issue you read in the proxy? I mean, there's a, a very well-known popular company out there that's the, the stock's done quite well. It's got an online, quote unquote, disruptive business model. But the family that controls it and the, the conflicts of interest that are laid bare in the proxy, right? I mean, there's uh, the family's not doing anything wrong per se, but it, it's impossible for me to believe that you would read this proxy and think this is the type of business where I want to be the minority outside shareholder. And I've talked to some of the people that are very public about owning it, and they have 30 and 40% of their portfolio invested in this one company, in this one publicly traded equity, and they, they haven't even read the proxy. So I, I just find it stunning that this kind of stuff still happens when the real hard work of business, developing a product and a business that people actually want to use, and they can self-sustain and grow over time 
it's so hard. I mean, it, I'm, I'm always in awe of what businesses and the people who run them can accomplish over a few years. It's just stunning. And then we get down to this kind of stuff, which should be the, you know, quote unquote, back office blocking and tackling of, of running the operation. And they just completely fail down and make life harder on themselves. And I don't, I'll never understand it. I, why this continues to persist. So I, I want to ask you guys whether I'm being too harsh in this regard. I mean, it's not a black line test for me to invest in a company if they do this well or do this poorly. But when I see it this extreme, it does make me kind of stop and wonder, like, is this is this thing just going to go completely off the rails because of some relatively minor choice in how they chose to compensate their people and how much they chose to compensate their people? Or do you guys see it differently? Yeah, I'm going to give you the classic on the one hand, on the other hand here, which is um, Modest Proposal had tweeted out a study from Empirical on stock performance and stock comp levels. And I think almost never is stock comp the fulcrum in a thesis. Like you will be right or wrong because of a million other things before the extent and magnitude of stock comp. That said, companies that tend to be uh, cavalier with stock comp in ways that are not just like um, profligate, but that are um, that don't truly achieve business objectives, there could be other problems. So maybe you're more likely to be wrong in one of those other ways. And then the other thing I'm thinking about is in this environment where you have a bunch of companies who's like very, and now that so many companies are way off highs and so many of these companies that are, you know, growthier tech names, which is where you tend to find these rates of stock comp. Um, I think environmentally, almost all of them are just like way underwater on two, three, four years of grants, five years in some cases you know, what happens to employees? They just saw a big pool of comp effectively evaporate into nothing. Um, You know, does it incentivize some sort of like carousel of people leaving to somewhere else to get new stock comp at lower levels? Or, you know, what's going to happen to employee retention, happiness? And, um, you know, that could have ripple effects too uh, in the competition for like high quality talent. Um, these are people who, you know, are paid well for a reason. Stock comes a portion of it. And then lastly, I do hate this whole, you know, our buyback program is designed to offset uh, a dilution from stock comp because you're effectively just making explicit in cash flow terms the expense while trying to play games with it all. Um, you know, I think I've said it on the pod before. I wish someone out there, some company out there would be like, Hey, we're just going to pay our employees more and give them an ESOP where they could buy our stock for 20% less than its market price. Exactly. Exactly. Right. It's so good. It's so easy too. Yeah. Just make it all explicit, right? Like it is what it is. People who want to own stock should get the right to own stock and let them buy in. For less than others, because, hey, they do have skin in the game in a different way. And that is a good alignment. Um, it's, and it's plenty of companies do that. So to be fair, right, plenty of companies do offer that sort of situation. And, and God bless them. But it doesn't seem like nearly enough compared to the ones that are kind of egregious stock comp abusers. Yeah, I saw an interesting healthcare company where everyone who could bought the ESOP last week. And I was like, oh, that's that's really nice to see where like. They're not a big stock comp company, and uh, you, right. you see the forms come in, and it's like, oh yeah, everyone everyone bought it. That's like it warms my heart. Yeah, uh, I think it's very different when companies just issue so that people could sell when the time comes. Like that's just gross. Um, yeah, and yeah, here I am. I'm long some of these companies, so like, who am I to complain that much? But I do believe, you know, that that on the one hand, on the other hand, at the end of the day, I don't think it's it's the fulcrum in in what happens here. Yeah, I, I look, I, I agree. You, you made a good point there. It's not the fulcrum. I'm not. And that's why I phrased the, the issue the way I did. Like, am I making a mountain out of a molehill with this? But I think the second part of it, on the one hand, on the other hand, is exactly right, which is that while it's not the fulcrum, 
it is still important. And it, I think the correlation between problems here and problems elsewhere, like you said, is high enough for me to be concerned about it. It's not enough for me to make a bright line test out of it, but it is enough for me to really dig in and triple and quadruple check the other issues and assumptions that might be at issue here, because I do think the correlation is high. And one other thing I think that's worth calling out is we, we've talked, and, and this one I will name by name, praise specifically here, is, is Constellation Software up in Canada, which we've talked about a lot before. And I know personally, uh, this is not any sort of investment recommendation because it's outside the purview of that. But I will call them out as generally being in the top 1% of all companies that I've ever looked at in, in how thoughtful they are about structuring things, right? I mean, there is nothing that is done there just because. And it's stunning to me how many companies have compensation practices that are done just because. Well, that's how our peers do it. That's how it's always been done. That's how our CFO learned to do it when he was a banker, uh, you know, whatever. Just these brain dead excuses, right? Everything that's done at Constellation on this level, whether it pertains to M&A strategy, hurdle rates, capital allocation, employee compensation, every possible thing they do there is done because Mark Leonard and his team have really thought about it and tried to get it right or tried to get it as close to right as they possibly can. They don't just settle for good enough or because somebody else does it and told them to do it. And so what do they do in this regard? They actually require people to take their cash compensation, which is generally quite low as a base salary and then you know, substantial and appropriate for, for high performers in, in the cash level. And they, they require them to take a meaningful portion of that cash compensation and buy the stock in the open market, or at least they used to. I haven't looked in the past year or two, but I remember when I came across this, I thought, huh, that's really interesting. And that's somewhat unusual. And they will be the first to tell you that this is not a silver bullet because the risk they run there is that the stock price gets too high. And now you've got literally a policy in place that forces your own people to buy the stock at an inflated value, right? If the market were to just inflate the, the price of Constellation software in the public market to a level that the company and its own employees thought was too high, the employees would still have to go out and buy it, right? That's not, that's not a great solution by any stretch of the imagination. It, it's probably better than some of the alternatives. I would, I would hold that line. But again, it just points to the fact that there's no easy answers here, but there ought to be some things that you could eliminate, which is the situation I just described, where you just sort of blow out stock compensation because it's free funny money, and then you go buy it back in the market. It's just that that drives me nuts. Well, let me ask you, uh, Phil, just to follow up on that quickly. What exactly is the difference then between awarding restricted stock versus paying in cash but requiring your employees to buy the stock? Yeah, so there's two important issues. One is I believe, I should check the numbers before I speak, but I believe the threshold was something like 30% of your cash compensation. So it wasn't all, right? So in the case where you get a base salary and then a huge chunk of executive of your executive compensation is in stock, in the company that I, the unnamed company that I described earlier, I think that ratio would be like 70% or 80% of your stock or 80% of your total compensation would be jammed down your throat in stock, right? In, in the case of Constellation, I think it's far lower. So you are giving employees a little bit more choice. And from what I gather from talking to people there uh, over the years, a lot of people have then made the choice to say, okay, well, I have to spend 30% of the cash bonus on stock. I'm actually going to spend 60 or 70 or 80 or 100 or whatever it is. They end up making the choice to make a much bigger investment on their own in the company. So it does give them more choice, which I'm generally in favor of while tying them to, you know, a meaningful low kind of level, right? They can't go below 30 is, is my understanding unless something has changed there. So I, that to me makes more sense than just issuing people shares. And, and, and by the way, when you're issuing shares, like I've never heard of a company that takes price into consideration, right? At, at least in the case of Constellation, they're aware of it. And if the stock were to get completely out of line, I think they have a few ideas as to how they'd handle that. Um, the other issue, of course, that's, that's the real elephant in the room is when you're paying people in cash, you've deducted that compensation from your taxable income, and then you pay it to people, and then it's on them to go actually buy the stock. It, it, it 
doesn't benefit the company when you issue the stock and then buy it back with your own after-tax <laughs> profits and cash flow, right? So that that is just completely backwards and ridiculous. And you know the numbers aren't always huge inside of a big company, but uh, I mean for every company and every CFO would try to claim like, oh, we want to be as efficient as possible and every dollar matters. And it's like, well, then why are you doing this? Right. So. Yeah. You know, one thing that I, that I find also interesting, I don't know if this actually happens like this in real life, but to me, it would seem possible where basically if you have stock comp, um, the payoff prof profile could be really skewed. You know, if the stock goes up a ton, employees actually end up making more money than would be needed to retain them. A hundred percent. But if a stock drops a ton, you may end up needing to issue more stock comp. You do. To yeah. kind of compensate for the drop and keep those employees. So it doesn't seem like a great deal for the shareholders. And very cynically, it's 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 a screw job for the shareholders. And very cynically, I mean, it, it tends to skew very heavily toward the top, right? And so the, the senior most executives who actually have the ability to influence the policies and the levels and get the board to sign off on all this stuff are the ones that are going to say, oh, you know, we issued a bunch of stock comp at $50 a share and now the stock's at 12. We should probably revisit this, right? I mean, it's the old, at, at its most extreme, a good idea taken way too far into illegal territory was the backdating of options, right? I mean, that whole scandal that, that we all remember, right? But in a more legal way, in a completely legal way, just a very disingenuous and, and kind of shameless way, lots of companies do that, right? Where they're like, oh, well, we paid ourselves, you know, I, I paid myself basically $20 million of stock comp, but that was when the stock was at 50 and now it's at 20. So it's not worth, you know, that much anymore. So I should get more, I should get more shares, right? So the dilution works against you as, as a shareholder, if you're a non-executive shareholder of it. And look, I, I had this hammered home to me in terms of the incentives of the whole thing. Because like, let's, let's not forget what this is trying to do. This is trying to incentivize good people to do well on behalf of the company. And in my opinion, it does the opposite of that a lot of times. I have a very close friend who works for a company that went public, uh, let's see, it would have been in 2020. And the IPO went very well. And he'd only been at the company a few years. And he was not a C-level executive, but he got some stock options, struck at $4 a share, and the IPO went off at 20 and the stock promptly went to 40 So what does he do? What does any normal, reasonable human being does? They start doing the math as to what those stock options are now worth, right? And he's counting his, his pile of money at $40 a share. Well, guess what happened? The stock went from $40 a share to 20 to 10. And here we are back at 10. So look, he's still way in the money on those options that are struck at four, trading at 10. And he's going to get, in any sense of the word, a lot of compensation. And he shouldn't be complaining about the absolute dollar amount of compensation. But what's he comparing it to? He's comparing it to the amount of money he would have made at 40, right? More than four times what he's going to make now. And so what has this done to his motivation? He's pissed. He's talking about leaving. He's like, you know, I just, I really have lost some faith in management. I just, this place isn't what I thought it was. And I'm like, well, what changed from, you know, 12 months ago when the stock was at 40? Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing's changed. I just, you know, I saw all this money that I thought I had evaporate. I mean, it's just, the, it's the psychology of misjudgment, right? We, it, we've talked about that on this podcast a million times. When you think you have something and then you realize you don't, or when you have something and then it's taken away, it makes people's brains malfunction. It makes their brains turn to mush. And this is a prime example of how this kind of compensation almost sets you up for that failure, right? And I think it's a huge mistake. Absolutely. You know, just one other thought on, on the share repurchase aspect of what you talked about in this case, where the company bought back a ton of stock at much higher prices. Um, to me, I actually like looking at those kinds of companies as potential investments, especially if they have an owner-operator. So you know there's someone in, in the management who cares about not wasting money on, on buybacks. And to kind of think, well, that person might have thought that was a good buy at that price. And now it's like 50 plus percent lower. Um, I like looking at those kinds of situations. But sometimes... 
the 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 Sherry purchases at the higher level can also just reflect management hubris. I mean, if you think back to the Sears Holdings example, where they bought back a ton of stock, uh, pretty high up there, um, you know, basically, and then later on, as the company kind of came crashing down, but wasn't really totally down on its knees, there were like several years where Eddie Lampert actually thought he could compete with Amazon with some kind of a Sears digital initiative, you know, and that to an outsider, you know, someone who's not at the company, it would have seemed kind of ridiculous. But they actually pursued that strategy for several years. So right to the very end. Yeah, the stop my way thing went right all the way to the bankruptcy, right? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. And, uh, you know, so... It's not enough that you know a company with an owner operator was buying back shares uh, a lot higher than they're trading now. Uh, even though I, you know, I like looking at those kinds of uh, situations. Yeah, agreed. All right, great, Elliot. Uh, let's uh, move on to your uh, topic of the week. All right. So um, I wanted to revisit something we started this podcast basically in the early phases of the COVID pandemic. And I'd several times spoken about how I think, you know, some of the COVID winners are truly uh, changed in a better way. And meanwhile, you know, you fast forward a year and a half and that just looks like a terrible uh, call on my part. And so I wanted to in part revisit that. You know, I had spoken about bifurcating the world into winners and losers, and then bifurcating the winners and losers into those that had ephemeral wins or problems, and those that had more permanent uh, inflections or uh, call it um, impairments. And one of the things I've been surprised about is how the market hasn't approached this with any nuance. Um, And there's no bifurcation at all. Everything's traded as one trade throughout it all. And as we sit here today, what's kind of wild to observe is that the COVID losers that were ephemeral in nature, allegedly, have actually benefited more since the pandemic in the stock market than have the COVID winners. So like to give a couple examples, Booking and Live Nation are all up meaningfully more than Netflix is since COVID started. Um, and there are a bunch of COVID winners that are down since their pre-COVID levels. So like, what's going on here and why is this happening? Um, I don't necessarily want to answer the question of like, you know, which companies are doing what and for what reasons, but I want to offer two observations that I've been thinking about and then open it up for discussion on, you know, maybe the bigger question, but also these two particular things. Um, I think the first thing that's going on is the market today, I think even more so than in typical times because of COVID um, and because of how extreme an event it is, the market over extrapolates trends, especially when the second derivative is changing dramatically in one direction or another. What I mean that by that is rapid acceleration in growth rates. The market doesn't know where growth rates are going to accelerate to or settle down, so it just assumes they're going to persist. And then on the flip side, decelerating growth rates, when growth rates decelerate, well, the assumption is, you know, this thing's never going to get back to its pre-COVID growth trend. It's going to go growth, maybe even negative. So on the way up, everything's good. On the way down, everything's bad. And it's, you know, kind of like extrapolate that in perpetuity. Um, And so, you know, right now, when you think about the COVID losers, who are ephemeral in nature, their, their, their pains, pains were ephemeral, the bookings and live nations. Well, right now you're getting that second derivative acceleration. So the market's just saying, hey, giddy up, you know, second derivative going up. And on the COVID winners, you're getting kind of like what I call a growth hangover, where if you look over the course of three years, their growth was consistent with what you'd have expected pre-COVID, if not better. In, in the true winners cases, I insist it's meaningfully better. But, you know, growth right now, as of today, for this very present period, as you lap tough comps, is slower than it had been. And the question is, you know, at what rate does it reestablish itself? And so the market's way over extrapolating, assuming these low, low, uh, low growth rates post-COVID are going to kind of go on in perpetuity. 
And then the second thing I'm thinking a lot about is flows matter so much. So I mentioned in my kind of beginning phases of this little rant, the nuance that the market has not approached things with, the lack of nuance. Um, what's happened, I think, is everything's been put in one bucket. And what's become clear to me is that I lacked an appreciation for how certain environments and certain sectors, everything becomes what I'd call one trade. Um, effectively, what I mean is like very different businesses with very different revenue drivers, with very different growth outlooks, margin outlooks, et cetera, all end up with the exact same chart. And on the way up, you might think you got something specific right about a business. And you very well might have, but the fact is when they move in a basket, it makes no difference. You are re- merely in the right place at the right time is something I'm, I'm you know, more convinced of about myself. You know, I'm not speaking about other people here. Um, and you know, what's clear is that when flows reverse, they don't just flatline, they go entirely the opposite way. So when you know something becomes flow driven on the way up, when the flows reverse, you need to find new buyers, and that's very hard to do. Um, so it's really hard to parse out winners and losers. But you know, one of the things I do think is that it's creating a host of great opportunities here, but also a lot of people who are most keen on capitalizing them are in a lot of pain right now. So it's a really interesting setup. It's really interesting to reflect on the over-extrapolation that's been going on. And I think it's really important. It's something that a lot of value investors and long-term investors take for granted, how much flows drive things and how much narrative is kind of a corollary of flow. And it goes hand in hand. And you see companies where the narrative is like absolutely nihilistic right now when the reality is, you know, way different than than I think some of these conversations people are having about them. Um, though, you know, it was it was obviously too rosy on the way up. So, you know, that too, the narrative over extrapolates with the direction of the second derivative. And, um, you know, that's something that I'm, I've been thinking a lot about. And I figured I'd lay that out here. Eager to hear uh, your guys' thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an important point that the second derivative can really, I mean, this is something Ben Graham figured out all those years ago. The second derivative can really swamp the boat and it can happen quickly and it can last for months. It can last for a couple of years. So uh, it's something I've become acutely aware of, certainly over my time investing. And I don't know what to do about it because I certainly can't predict it, right? I mean, maybe in my arrogant youth, I would have thought like, oh, this data point here, or this occurrence that I've just noticed is a sign that the second derivative is just flipped. And, you know, I think there are some people out there that can do it. I think Druckenmiller can, can do it in more than one asset class, which is pretty impressive, but I certainly can't. So it's not something that I even try to do. But when I when it happens and when you're in the midst of it, so let's take your assumption or your assertion that things are nihilistic in in some of these businesses and some of these stock prices. Now, if that's the case, then I just try to recognize it for what it is. And, you know, this is probably the hardest part of the whole deal is just then removing myself from that emotionally and psychologically and saying, all right, like this is a bloodbath. We know it's a bloodbath. What am I going to do about it? And is is it right or is it wrong? Right. Is this the second derivative just taking over the narrative and making everything crazy or is the market telling me something that's important and you know i tend not to think that the market is always correct i think it's usually correct it's often correct and i just try to find the, the places where i agree with it and when you see really extreme fear and greed in the market and the second derivative is really winning the day those are the times that i get really excited because that's the best opportunity to go find something that you can act on right i mean i i wish i had something more reliable to to say i wish i had like a four-step algorithm that i could write for this but that's kind of all i can all i can do yeah i guess i would also just um add that to me elliot as you point out it doesn't really make sense for COVID losers to be up more than the COVID winners since the start of COVID. i mean we've had Basically, what has happened in the world over the past two years is that the adoption of the internet has skyrocketed for all kinds of use cases. And uh, that's not going back. 
uh, to where it was before. So, you know, COVID winners have had a material improvement in their businesses. You know, a lot of growth has been pulled forward and will continue, but from a higher base. And uh, COVID losers, on the other hand, kind of had a pause on their businesses for a couple of years. So to me, um, if it's really true, which it seems to be, at least in a lot of cases, that COVID losers have done better than COVID winners since the start of the pandemic, it's just a sign that uh, Mr. Market might be overreacting the other way at this point. Uh, so, you know, I would just... Uh, take that as a cue to actually go and do some work on some of these companies that have been killed also in part or because of what you call um, you know the the one the single trade which yeah, it John, be. I'm glad you mentioned the uh covid losers that are winning now because that was a question I was supposed to ask you guys as well like will there be a moment where these companies like live nation and booking similarly face the second derivative problem, right? Like, is the market just doing the same thing and going from one sector to another and doing this? I'll, I'll jump in on that one just because I happen to know a couple of those businesses and I won't comment too directly at the risk of giving bad advice or, or any advice, which is not the goal. But I think that, to your point, there's been this really weird, I mean, one of the weirdest things about COVID for me was both the first and second derivative effects or the first and second level thinking that's been going on. So not only did you have this obvious scenario where like John accurately described, you had COVID that permanently pulled forward demand for a lot of companies, uh, particularly if they had any sort of online or any sort of virtual component uh, that, you know, and, and he's right. I mean, that, that's obvious that that benefited a lot of those companies and they got labeled COVID winners or whatever. The problem as a side note, was in a lot of those cases, it pulled forward demand that required a ton of investment at really, really crappy returns on capital. That doesn't create value, that destroys value. So that's a separate topic. But in the case of like uh, some of these quote unquote recovery plays or COVID losers that are winners or whatever you want to call them, things like Live Nation. I mean, Live Nation is a concert driven business. And at various points along the way, it's traded above where it would have otherwise. And that is interesting because you blew basically two years of their business out of the water. And to make that up on a present value basis, you'd have to say that the subsequent recovery in demand and the economics accruing to Live Nation are going to be so much better that they're going to make up for the fact this company just went nowhere for two years. And look, I mean, maybe that'll prove to be the case. I don't know. But in the case of the airlines, for example, which I know very well, which we've talked about at least three or four times before on the podcast for anyone who's who's missed it. I owned the airlines starting in 2016 and 2017, or I own two airlines anyway, the common stock of them, largely because I thought the financial benefits of the loyalty programs were tremendous. And ironically enough, those more than held up and actually blew away any of the assumptions I would have ever made on them in the or in the COVID crisis. Uh, and I thought that more than outweighed, you know, an average, not a below average, but just an average business in terms of the airline itself. But when COVID hit, it was just so obvious to me that the world had had permanently changed for them and that and not in a good way. Right. I mean, I don't know how many people are ever going to go back to business travel and go back to the office and all that kind of stuff. But I know that the competitive balance in that industry is fragile enough that this is not going to be good for most airlines. And and you the math you would have to do to create enough future value to offset the lost value from February of 2020 right through today and probably through the rest of 2022 and beyond is so enormous as to just be completely unreasonable. And yet here we are where the airlines have traded on a per passenger, per aircraft, enterprise value levels that are above where they would have traded pre-COVID. And Elliot, I, I, I don't know how to explain it to you. It's, it's truly bizarre to me that that's been... I guess you could explain it as saying that like once we got through calendar March 2020, that the second derivative was positive because things were getting better. Like once you go from 100 to three, you know, and then you go from three to five and five to seven, like everything's improving. I don't know. It, it's truly bizarre to me. 
Yeah, it really feels like everything's just moving on a rate of change, not fundamental value at all. And right. that's been like mind boggling to me. It's like fundamentals haven't mattered uh, on the way up or on the way down. And you could try to think like so many of these businesses are way less volatile, even during COVID than their stock prices have been. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm having a hard time putting some of these moves in historical context. Um, there are stocks that are moving as if, you know, um, kind of like com when there were no fundamentals, um, and airlines are a really interesting example of this. Cause I, that's one I was thinking about too. Like there are some, some of these companies that are above their previous highs are actually, you know, and I was talking on a per share basis. It's even worse than that because there had been some serious dilution and uh, kind of with the airlines, like took on a lot of debt. So in enterprise value terms, it looks even worse. Um, and, you know, it's just it, it's interesting to try to, like, learn from this and observe and think about, like, what sort of enduring uh, changes and lessons there will be out of this. Um, but I wonder if there's just like a. I wonder what's causing all this like hyper affinity for rate of change. Like if that's always been the case, I know it, it matters a lot. It obviously matters a lot. And I've used my friend's quote in the past, like the market has a hard time with accelerating growth when growth is already fast. Um, and you know, that cuts both ways, but um I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like left at a loss more asking a lot of questions than I am uh, having any sort of firm conclusions about anything here. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, this question around why does the market pay so much attention to rate of change or why does a certain, you know, group of investors, which is a huge group, especially a lot of novice um, investors or, you know, people who are just focused so much on growth, um, you know, it's part of the education that investors have received in the last few years in terms of market action. You know, you look at stocks that have done the best, like Tesla has been just a story stock. Um, or, you know, you take a look at the kind of most prominent ETF story out there, ARC, you know, it's all about innovation. And basically, so my, uh, you know, thesis now is that investors, um, a lot of them just stopped caring about valuation. And when you stop caring about valuation, then what do you have left? I mean, then it is about rate of change and uh, market share gains and who's growing the fastest. Because I always want to calibrate the fundamentals to the valuation. And um, And basically, you know, a company doesn't need to be growing that fast if it's reasonably valued. If it's hugely valued, then yeah, it does need to be growing really fast or it has to be super clear that it has a very long-term uh, sustainable moat. Um, but when you just throw valuation out of the picture, you just don't have a lot left to hang your hat on. And then you are always looking at what's what's the quarterly rate of change you know the second derivative the third derivative you know whatever <laughs> what, whatever you want to do you can even start looking at it monthly or weekly i mean it's it yeah yeah that's i think tough. that's a really powerful point I, I think it makes total sense too a lot of people I, I and it's one of the questions i ask myself did like too much of the investor class myself included learned some of the wrong lessons the last two years right sorry 10 years not two years where like if you buy something that's high quality and you know it, it doesn't matter exactly what valuation you pay in the beginning though i insist personally i've always been sensitive to starting point valuations especially um but that you know down the line uh the quality of the business is going to win out and look at Amazon. They invested without profits. They eventually uh, look look how much value they've created. Uh, and that was absolutely a critical part of the zeitgeist heading into COVID and even more so um, in the, I call it the wake of COVID, the immediate wake of COVID. Um, so I think that that does make sense. And when fundamentals don't matter on the way up, why should they matter on the way down, right? Like the market doesn't care. Um, it's not exactly what it's going to be looking at because the investor base isn't exactly anchoring to it. 
And so it's going to be driven more by flows. The other thing I wonder also, though, that I'd add to it is if the proliferation of like data and data feeds and um, all this alternative access to information has kind of accelerated the amount of fairly sizable, like the pod shops that just focus on kind of kicking things around based on the most recent rate of change that they see. And if there's just a much bigger group of investors um, out there who are merely uh, flinging around based on like the latest inflection that they could identify. So I wonder if those two forces compound on one another to create this like incredibly uh, wild oscillating environment. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't want to overstate it, although I do agree with pretty much everything that was said here and, and flows certainly matter and the second derivative certainly matters and it's a confluence of a lot of things right anytime you get a big crazy result there's always going to be multiple things pulling in the same direction and you've had a ton of money going to passive which is of course by definition momentum driven you've had this explosion in the gambling culture at least here in the US and and so i would say that i don't know about like going quite as far to say that fundamentals just don't matter anymore i think they do and and people are kind of aware of it in the back of their mind. But one thing that does seem to be kind of completely discarded in the mind of a lot of people in this era, the, the zeitgeist of the moment, is that odds don't matter, right? People are only looking at the results and, and completely ignoring the odds that they took on to get those results. So they're looking at what happened at AMC and GameStop and Bitcoin and Tesla and all these things that have gone up so dramatically and ignoring the fact that that was never even remotely close to likely to happen and that the odds you took on to get there were atrocious, right? Look, I'm not, I'm not a Tesla hater. I'm not short Tesla. Uh, I, I do have some issues with the corporate behavior there, but it's also done some very impressive things. And, and so you have to find some way to, to distance yourself between the, the impressive uh, some of the impressive operating results and the fact that most of the time along the way, the odds that were implied by the, the publicly available prices that we saw were totally nuts, right? And it still worked out and good for all those people, I guess. But I mean, I always say to people like, you know, I the number of people that have told me like, oh, I'm a first time, you know, buyer in the stock market, or I'm a first time gambler on NFL games on my new app that's legal. And I, they look at, they show me, they ask me to look at what they're doing. And I say, would you flip a coin where if you win, you get 40 cents. And if you lose, you pay me a dollar. Like <laughs> that's what you're doing here. Why, why would this be attractive? But that seems to be kind of the way things go these days in some regard, but I don't think it'll last forever. Yeah. I think Tesla is such an interesting example too, improving the zeitgeist because I'd say, you know, I've, I've followed it. Uh, with popcorn, not with any like economic interest. And, you know, I've, I've sympathized with both sides, the bulls and bears along the way, and they are way more profitable today than I think anyone, literally anyone, Musk himself included, would have thought possible right now, even just like five years ago. And simultaneously, I think they're way higher market cap than anyone, even the bulls would have thought. Musk twice has called the stock too expensive and wanted to take it private at like 420, right? Um, thinking, you know, uh, he'd have good returns, but I, I don't think anyone would have thought that this was like anything within the realm of possibilities. And I do think that conditioned a certain class of people um, to think in terms of like, you know, what if, it all goes right instead of what are the base rates and what are the most likely paths from here? And, you know, what's the skew look like? Um, and the skew definitely inverted the wrong direction at, at, at certain points. Um, and I personally, you know, again, a harp on myself, like recognize it in some things. So I didn't think the degree of vulnerability uh, was quite as extreme as it's been. So it's been, uh, you know, something to learn. <laughs> well, this market really has made it extremely hard for buy and hold investors. You know, in a normal market, I think you can buy a great business and hold it for the long term. And of course, you can still do this. But what happens in this kind of market where, you know, things go to the extreme, to the upside, as well as the downside, 
is that you have clients. I mean, most professional investors have open-ended vehicles of some kind or another, and you have clients coming and going. And, you know, just the way that it works out uh, with people's psychology is they tend to come at, toward the top and and leave toward the bottom. And, you know, that I think makes it much harder for the manager's psychology as well, because you obviously want to make money for your clients um, and you want to be a buy and hold investor, but it just makes it so much tougher when you have these kinds of swings. And I don't know what the solution is. I guess you do need to then become a little bit more willing to to sell and buy and say that this is just too crazy. Um, but then you're kind of um, potentially forgoing some of those long-term gains, um, you know. But yeah, it's just really difficult because we we do need to act based on what the market is willing to give us, you know, at any given time. Of course, we don't have to act, but you, you're not going to get like a market price that you want. It's just going to be whatever the market price is. Yeah, I think you're 100% right that that's the hardest part of this is the psychology because you want to do well, right? John, and, you, and you're right that if even if you're only investing for yourself, but especially if you're investing for other people, you feel those weight of expectations and the weight of those expectations can become overwhelming and swamp out all the logic and reason that you've worked so hard to cultivate over the years. And I don't know quite what the answer is. I mean, you know, look, we don't want to, there's, there's some level of sociopath out there that can just handle this stuff and not care at all what other people think, but the vast majority of people want to do well and they want to please others and they want to show good results and that can work against you. And I don't know what the best way to counteract that is other than to prepare for it and to be as, steely-eyed and stoic as you can possibly be just knowing that you're always going to go through periods of bad times and you just have to grit your teeth and get through it because there's there's no way to avoid it over the long term. But by the way, I, I agree that I, I used to think, you know, when I first learned about investing, it, it immediately made sense to me that volatility should not be equated with risk because that just logically is so stupid, right? I mean, if if a, an investment is not worth zero and the price has gone from 10 to five, the volatility has gone up and now it looks riskier, but you're buying something at five instead of 10, how could that possibly be riskier than buying it at a higher price, right? We all understand that, I think. And But what I failed to appreciate in, in my youthful arrogance of those days that I now totally appreciate was that the volatility can create its own risk for reasons you just said, right? In a period like this, where you're having some volatility, it can create risk because it, it convinces you to do dumb things. And that's something that I didn't appreciate enough over the years. Yeah, all that makes a lot of sense. And it not just could get you to do dumb things, it could get you to not do smart things. <laughs> oh, exactly. Well, that's even worse in some cases, right? Yeah. 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 And but one of the questions I'm still like really trying to wrap my head around is like, you know, is this such a unique epic where there are not uh, truly going to be applicable lessons down the lines, or is this just the nature of markets where there will be lots of things like this? Um, I don't, I, I see some people comparing it to the dot com bubble, and I think that's just insane. I think it's nothing like it at all. Um, and that it's, you know, um, the fundamentals are more like we've talked about the absence of fundamental analysis, but the fundamentals are more real in a lot of these things. Um, I'd say not just more real, they're real as opposed to like pure hot air. But at the same time, like you, this is a once in a hundred year event that the world is going through. And we've had such a unique response to it, both in terms of how we've lived our lives, you know, like locking down for months and how we've, um, how policy has been implemented, like very extreme stuff in all regards um and you know so all that raises a lot of questions like what what are the the right um future lessons to take out of this yeah great point um you know though i i guess i wouldn't be that adamant that i don't see parallels between this and the dot-com boom and bust i think yeah there's always differences and and um 
There are a lot of businesses now that are absolutely for real. Um, there also were in the dot-com boom and bust like Amazon, you know, emerged uh, a great company out of that. There were a lot of silly companies like pets.com. And um, and maybe now, you know, we're going to look back on this in 10 years. Maybe not. You know, I could be totally wrong, but maybe we'll look back and say, all that crypto stuff, that was just ridiculous. Like that, that stuff, that was so obvious that that was worthless. That whole freaking economy around crypto, just completely worthless. You know, I mean, that's what I think will happen. Could be totally wrong, probably will be totally wrong, because what do I know? You know? Like there's billions, trillions of dollars in that. Um, but so, yeah, there could be parallels. We just may not be seeing them uh, right now, but there's definitely a lot of silly business models. Like you think of Fubu TV or whatever that's called. I think we talked about that a little bit in the past. That's kind of a ridiculous uh, business model. Uh, but yeah, there's also some some good ones. But I'd say just for uh, anyone who's listening to this down the line, crypto has hung in and has done better since before COVID than just about any COVID winner out there. So that's an interesting one to call out in the moment right now, because I've, I've actually been surprised by that. That's about the only opinion I have to share on crypto, though. Yeah, uh, again, I'm probably wrong. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but I think, you know, some things probably take longer to prove out, especially something that where you really what are, how are you gonna, you know, what, what are what are the fundamentals? You know, if there are literally no fundamentals, it could take a long time because, yeah. Anyway, uh, Phil, any last words? I, yeah, I certainly don't have anything to add on crypto. I've tried as hard as I can to understand it. Probably still don't at all. But one thing that does jump out to me, right or wrong, is that there's there are some really smart people involved. And that's the probably only attraction I see to it. And And when they try to explain it, uh, I, I pretty quickly wonder, I mean, one skill that I definitely have is I can kind of tell quickly whether somebody knows what they're talking about or not. And I would say 99% of the people that I've spoken to or read what they've written don't know what they're talking about. They, they haven't even bothered to read some of the original documents that, that created the crypto ecosystem. And so that, that jumps out to me. And then I would say, way more than 99% of the people that are involved. I mean, 99.9% of the people that are involved don't know what they believe about crypto. And, and as soon as you raise any sort of valid criticism, because look, everything has a valid criticism. Nothing is perfect. No financial asset, whether it's a speculative trading sardine or whether it's the greatest fundamental business opportunity you've ever seen in your life, everything has flaws and drawbacks. And when you raise some of those legitimate flaws and drawbacks with 99.9% of crypto buyers and, and supporters, it just devolves into either uh, they just turn back and yell scoreboard, look at how much the price has gone up, or it, it devolves into <clears throat> ad hominem attacks, right? I mean, I watched the Daily Journal meeting the other day with Charlie Munger, who took a very strident negative opinion on crypto and and everything was just a ad hominem attack against him. So it, it does strike me that the big proponents of crypto don't seem to have much, much valid pushback. It just kind of devolves into these arguments that don't pertain to the matter at hand. So I'll leave it at that. It's interesting you mentioned Munger there, though, because I think one point that would be good to attach to this conversation is he emphasized how um, they do invest in tech now and how important tech is and how it's not going away. And it's a key part that every investor should be looking at in the landscape uh, at sure. a time when it seems incredibly out of favor. Um, yeah, because look, they, I mean, one of the things they've always preached is you have to keep learning, right? You, you can never stop learning it. And, and about every 10 years, I was talking about this with somebody yesterday, about every 10 years, the playbook has had to change, right? From net nets to just low book value to some activism control to, you know, good businesses at low prices to good businesses and great businesses at reasonable prices, et cetera, et cetera, right? Everything has to change. There's no one specific playbook that's going to last for 50 years, even though the principles are by definition going to last for 50 years if they're worthwhile. And so, yeah, it's, a, it's an obvious outcome that they, you know, 
even in their 90s, they would figure out a way to make $100 billion off of what's otherwise known as a tech company. Yeah, and I think with tech, you know, even if you're someone who maybe didn't grow up on tech or thinks he doesn't understand it, I think you can understand the utility of a lot of tech. I mean, take Google Maps. To me, that's the best example. Like that stuff is so useful compared to what existed before Google Maps. And, you know, if I could see something like that with crypto, it would it would certainly uh, change my opinion. Um, and, and so that's, I think, what it comes down to. Like, what utility is something adding to our lives, to the end user? You know, it can't just be, well, get rich quick. You know, you can get rich with this. Well, no. What is the actual utility in a normal person's life who is not a financial speculator? You know? <laughs> That's the real test of whether a technology or anything else um, adds value. Agreed. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much. Another great discussion. I hope all of you listening enjoyed it as well. We'll talk to you a week from now. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.